We welcome you to High Point Church of Brandon. We're glad that you're with us this morning in Sunday school. We're going to continue on in our study in the writings of John. Today we're actually reading in 1 John. But to recap a little bit about what we've looked at, last week we looked at Jesus' forgiveness and his restoration of one of his disciples, and that was Peter. And we saw that in spite of, of all of Peter's shortcomings and mistakes and blunders and even three times denying that he even knew Jesus, that Jesus forgave him and restored him so that he could continue spreading the gospel. And Jesus didn't tell Peter that, hey, you know, it's okay what you did. It was no problem. But instead, he forgave him and restored him and then recommissioned him back into his ministry. It wasn't that Jesus was condoning Peter's actions. Rather, it was that he was to make, trying to make him whole again by forgiving him and restoring him. And we see that because of this, Peter's ministry went from there and it grew and continued on all the way up to the time of Peter's death by crucifixion. And even facing crucifixion, we see that Peter did not deny Jesus Christ. Today I want us to build on the foundation that we laid last week as we look at the ideas of acknowledging and admitting sin so that we too can be restored to our Christian fellowship and commission. I want to start reading in 1 John chapter 1 and read verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We, were, we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Unlike most of the letters written in, <clears throat> in the New Testament, John does not begin this letter with a salutation or a greeting to the readers. If you go back through what is considered the Pauline epistles or, or the, the letters that Paul wrote to different followers and to the different churches, he always had this kind of flowery, gracious uh, salutation and opening. But John doesn't write this and open this letter in this way. Rather, he he comes at it and he opens it with a, a four-verse prologue or introduction that establishes the physical reality of Jesus' incarnation. You go, well, what, what does that mean? Stay with me and we're going to cover that in just a second. John wanted to develop, his, his purpose of writing this was to develop a fellowship between his readers and himself and the apostles, as well as his readers and God. <clears throat> it wasn't enough that they just believed in God. He wanted there to be fellowship between them and their God. In verse 4, he says, if I can do that, then my joy will be complete. John's important message was this. In these first four verses, the point that John was trying to get across is that he and the other apostles had witnessed firsthand that Jesus was God in flesh. 
That's what he was saying. He wanted his readers to know that Jesus was a man, this is in verse 1, that he had looked at, he had heard him speak, he had actually touched him with his own hand. And he was saying, this is not something I heard, this is something I did, and my fellow disciples did also. That this Jesus Christ was a real man. Now why was this important? Apparently at that time, there were false teachers that were denying the teachings of Jesus and even disputing that he lived as a human being. These aren't people that were just total unbelievers. These, this was going on within the church and within a group of believers. And this belief is similar to what we would refer to as Gnosticism. And this type of, of Gnosticism had invaded the early church. The general beliefs of Gnosticism is this. All matter or flesh is evil. And if all matter or flesh is evil, then Jesus could not have really been flesh because then he would have been evil. That's what the Gnostics believed. They believed instead that Jesus was a spirit being. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal with that? We've said before in our study that when we take away the humanity of Jesus Christ, we take away the sacrifice. When we turn Jesus into, yeah, but he was just God. When we turn him into that, then we take away that he was a man that came as a man to this earth and shed his blood because someone had to die for all of our sins. And since a man had to die, if we take away the humanity of Jesus Christ, then everything he did really didn't matter. They also believed that knowledge and not faith was the condition of salvation. But it wasn't just any knowledge. There was some, some little side notes here. The knowledge was not available to everyone. And they taught to truly know Jesus, it required a type of mystical secret knowledge that the Gnostic teachers would share with them. You can't go get it on your own. You have to come to me, and then I will give you this all-new secret. Now, let me stop and say this for a moment. This is still happening today. And I'm not talking about a uh, in a back alley with a sign over the door that says uh, palm readings. I'm talking about in churches today. There are, there are people that, that will try to make others believe that they have a secret that is beyond what this book says. And I can share it with you for twenty nine ninety five plus shipping and handling. You can get my book and a DVD, and you can find out what the real truth is. Now, let me say this: I have no problem with books. I think people should read more books than they do, but. If the book presents a whole new idea that does not match up with the Word of God, then it didn't come from God. And if it didn't come from God, then we know where it came from. So read books, study the Word, 
by books that have commentary on the on the scripture but let me assure you that if any of them say they have a whole new truth and a whole new plan and a new way and it goes against the word of god it's not from god Salvation is not a mystical experience. It's a very simple plan that is spelled out in a very simple manner in the Bible. It's not difficult. It's a, and people try to make it into this, this mystical thing, even today. That it's almost like this, this, ooh, and you hear this strange music and, and then something, it's not like that. If you want to read someone's opinion, that's fine. But keep in mind that it's their opinion. But be careful when they try to express their opinion as a new revelation. That's where a lot of cults get started, is when people start to proclaim a new revelation and an addition and an addendum to the Word of God. And there are none. The way to salvation has not changed from the days of the early church. Another belief of the Gnostics was that if the body was totally evil, then there was no way that God could have been united with the human body. Because God is holy, and anything that's flesh is evil, so it would have been impossible for there to be this God-man named Jesus. And what that does is just it's an outright denial of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Oh, I, I don't doubt that at all. G- John flatly denies this line of thinking by saying that, let me just tell you something, I saw him, I heard him, and I touched this God in the flesh. That's what these four verses were about. He was, he was trying to reconcile everybody to this one belief that Jesus was who he said he was. Because without that, then there was going to be division in the church. And when there was division in the church, there couldn't be fellowship. And John said that my joy would be complete if there was fellowship in the church. And John wanted to make sure that his followers knew that these ideas that were being taught were false. He wanted to make sure that they knew that there was no way that they could find salvation any other way than through Jesus Christ. He also wanted to make sure, and if you go back to verse 1, that the one that came to give us eternal life existed from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes. That's what he said. John felt that in order for us to have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus Christ, that we had to understand the essentials of our faith. If we don't understand it and we just buy into any new thing that comes along, how can we be in agreement? How can we have fellowship one with another if we believe a bunch of different things? If every time somebody new comes on TV and we go, well, I like that message better. No. 
I believe there's a place in the Bible that says, Paul said, if even if I come back, or even if an angel comes and teaches you anything different than what we've taught you, then let him be accursed. Even if I come back and tell you, hey, all that stuff I told you before, forget it. I got something new. If I come back and tell you that, don't believe it. Because this is what's true. And the reason that we have to get a hold of these things is, and the reason they're so important is because they are the basis for which everything we believe is built on. And if we can't believe that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, then we might as well take the whole book and throw it out. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. <clears throat> if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us all from all sin. In this passage, John extends to his readers an offer for them to be in fellowship with, with He and the other, impos- the other apostles. But he set up some parameters for this fellowship. He said in verse 5, God is light. He didn't say God might be light. Sometimes God is light. He said God is light. And John's point was, if God is light, and God is pure and holy and totally free from the darkness of sin, then how can we have fellowship with a holy God and continue to walk, walk in darkness? If God is light and sin is darkness, then the two can't be together. Because you either have darkness or you have light. I read something that I thought was interesting. Darkness is not the opposite of light. It's the absence of light. Which means the two can't exist together. If darkness is the total absence of light, once you put a tiny little light, it's not dark anymore. Right? So what John is saying, he's breaking this down in a very simple way, that if God is light, and there is no darkness at all in Him, and you want to be in fellowship with Him, then you have to be in the light. He went on to make it clear that if we claim to have fellowship with God and we continue in sin, then we're just deceiving ourselves. You're just, you're just kidding yourself. If you think that you can continue to sin and be in darkness and walk in the light all at the same time, you're just deceiving yourself. And metaphorically speaking, those who enjoyed Genuine fellowship with God, in turn, walked in the light. If you are truly fellowshipping with the real, true, pure, sinless God, then you have to be walking in the light. 
It doesn't mean that we become perfect. It doesn't mean that we ever were perfect. It doesn't mean that we never have or never will sin. What it does mean is that those that walk in the light will allow that light to reveal their sin. And when the light reveals that sin to them, then they turn away from it. He wasn't saying that once you're, once you're in the light, that you'll never make another mistake. He didn't say that at all. He said when you're in the light, the light will show you those things that you need to be doing. And those that have done this are the ones who will have fellowship with God. And this is done by confessing our sin and in turn having our sins cleansed and purified. 1 John 1 and 8 through chapters 2 and verse 2. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Listen to that. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But... If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. A consistent part of walking in the light involves the confession of sin. If we go back to the beginning of our reading. To confess is to acknowledge or a vow to admit as true. To acknowledge or a vow to admit as true. So if we confess our sins, then we are acknowledging that we have sinned. Or we have admitted that we have sinned. This means that we have to adopt the same attitude towards sin that God has. Not that we accept it, but that we want to turn away from it. We have to admit that sin does exist, and we have to admit it when it does exist. Not that it just exists somewhere, but we have to admit when it exists in our life. When the light of God shows on our life and points out something that is sin, then we have to acknowledge it, and we have to confess it, and ask for repentance. And we have to repent and ask for forgiveness. Now, it's difficult to do that, if you don't believe there's such thing as sin. There's a pastor of a large church that was on a, a TV talk show, and in the interview, he made the statement that he doesn't talk about sin because people really don't want to hear that. Okay. You would get a lot more people if you just talk about happy, happy, joy, joy. And yes, there is happy, happy, joy, joy in living for God. 
But there's only happy, happy, joy, joy in living for God when we have acknowledged that we have sinned and we have repented and asked for forgiveness. You cannot have happy, happy, joy, joy in your sin. The Bible makes that clear. And I think that there is somewhere in between every time we, we gather together and, and someone would stand and just give you a list of all the things that are sin and just come around and just smack you upside the head, there's a happy medium in between that and never talking about the fact that there's sin in the world. And this pastor went on to say that he didn't have to. People know when they do wrong. Okay. So when you raise your kids, you just need to turn them loose and let them go do whatever. And they'll learn. See, I don't believe that because I believe that there were times that Jesus stopped and told some people that, you know, that's probably not the best thing you should do. You just don't do those things. He taught things that were things to do and things not to do. Yes, he taught about loving your brother. Yes, he taught about forgiveness and all of those things too because it's all part of the package. But you can't just pick what you want to go along with. The Bible says that there is sin. The Scripture for reading saying that there is sin. And if you say that you've never sinned, then you're just a liar. And then that's a sin. It goes on to say that if you say you've never sinned, then you have no need for God and, and you make Him out to be a liar. When we acknowledge and forsake our sin, then God has promised that He will forgive us and cleanse us from whatever that sin has left in our lives. He cleans our heart up. Verse number 9 says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we never had any sins, then why would He do that? And His forgiveness is based on justice. His forgiveness is not based on indulgence or tolerance of sin. He's not saying, well, it was okay. You know, I understand. It was no big deal. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't tolerate sin. He forgives sin. There's a big difference in tolerating it and forgiving it. He's saying, when you acknowledge that you've done something wrong, I will forgive you if you ask for forgiveness. If it was about tolerance of sin, then the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross was of no use because that was for forgiveness of sins and for the remissions of sins. And if God just tolerates it, then why did Jesus go through all of that? Rather, Christ's work on the cross completed God's plan for forgiveness. That was the ultimate forgiving point in God's overall plan for the world. When we talk about confession, confession is not, maybe it's not in mine and maybe it is in yours, is not necessarily a one-time event. Not in most Christians' lives. 
It is a continual thing. David said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I believe that daily we need to ask God to search us. Shine that light. If He is the light, God, shine that light on my heart. And allow me to see anything in my life that shouldn't be there. That's what David's saying. And I believe that faithfulness to this practice will maintain our fellowship with God. And remember, John was writing this section of Scripture so that we could have a fellowship with God. And now he's pointing out the facts and the ways that we can continue that fellowship with God. And that's, God, search my heart. And if there's something in my life that shouldn't be there, point it out to me so that I can get rid of it. Because ultimately, I want to have that fellowship with you. As we said before, it is impossible for darkness and light to exist. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Some people will never benefit from the forgiveness of God because they refuse to admit that they've ever sinned. Verse 10 tells us that if we claim to have never sinned, we make God out to be a liar. But if the Spirit of God is active in our life, then what we would do instead is to confess our sin rather than deny that we have any. The devil would love for you and would love for people to go through their whole life saying, I don't have any sin in my life. Because if you say you don't have any sin, you'll never ask for forgiveness. And if you never ask for forgiveness, you'll never be forgiven. And if you're never forgiven, you can't go to heaven. So that's great for the devil. Sure. Satan tried to, Satan did tempt Jesus, but he didn't accept it. Yes, he did. And we, for sure, we have to do what you just said. We have to, to go before the Lord and say, you know, search me, Lord. That's right. Is there something that I am overlooking? That's right. King David was described as a man after God's own heart. Let's look at Psalm 32 and 5 and see what this man said. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is the man that's described as a man after God's own heart. But he said, I came to the point where I acknowledged that I'd sinned. And I didn't try to cover it up. One of the first mistakes that too many people make is that they try to justify their sin as, well, I I was just weak or 
Um, I just kind of slipped away from God a little bit. And they, by saying that, you're not professing your sin. You're not asking for forgiveness. Thank you. You're making excuses for it. And David said, that's not what I did. I didn't try to cover up my sin. I believe that it's imperative that when we sin, we acknowledge it to ourselves and to God that it is what it is, sin. Because when we deny that, we don't receive forgiveness. David has this, the, he was a great man. He did great things, but he did some really stupid things. And he committed some horrible sins. But David, I believe the reason that he was found to be a man after God's own heart is because when he did sin, he would turn to God. Even though he was king of Israel, he would turn to God and said, I have sinned. Some Christians try to hide behind the sin as being somewhat lessened or insignificant because of their spiritual position. As Bishop Goldsberry said, some people say, well, you know, I've lived for God for so long, and, and because I pastor this church, then it's okay for me to do this. Don't you do this, but it's okay for me. If it's sin for those in the pews, it's sin for those in the pulpit. David was king of Israel, and he still acknowledged his sin. And when he did, he also stated that it was something I could have covered up, but I didn't. As a result, God forgave David's sin. Look at Psalm 51. I want to read verses 1 and read through verse 3. Psalm 51, 1 through 3. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is the king of Israel. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David knew that it was in him to sin because he was a man. He was the king of Israel, and he had great power, but he was still a human being, and he knew that it was in him to sin. And he knew when he did sin that the only thing he could do at that point was to ask for forgiveness and go to God. He also was smart enough to know that that's the only way that he could receive cleansing from that sin was from God. Verses 4 through 6. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Failure among God's people is nothing new. It's not new to our culture. I mean, we see 
Christians, we see pastors, we see different leaders, spiritual leaders that fall. And we think, oh, we're living in the last days because of this. We probably are living in the last days, but this is through the Bible. There's examples of people that failed God. David is a great example, but Samson failed. Abraham failed. Solomon failed. Jonah failed. The Hebrew people failed as a nation. Most of the disciples of Jesus failed at one time or another. The evidence of men's failure in the Bible is overwhelming. But just as overwhelming is the evidence that God is still in the redemption business. Because we see time and time again that even though these people had failed, they came back and asked for forgiveness and God forgave them and they went on to do tremendous things for God. It was Peter that stood on the day of Pentecost. The same guy that had denied even knowing Jesus Christ stood on the day of Pentecost and spoke this eloquent message and told the people, this is what you've done. You've killed the Messiah. And he did such a good job that there was 3,000 people that were saved that day. Galatians 6 and 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. This was not Paul excusing sin. It was Paul acknowledging that even as believers, we are all tempted and are capable of sinning. And he said when that happens, that the rest of the believers should try to restore that person. And I've said it before that the church is one of the few organizations that too many times kills their wounded. A lot of churches that if, if Peter would have been a member, when he did what he did, they would have kicked him out so fast and told him, you're not allowed to come back. You're a horrible person. But he sat next to the very person he had offended, Jesus. And Jesus said, do you love me, Simon, more than the rest of these guys love me? Yes, Lord. Then go do the work that I set out there for you. And not too many days afterwards, we find Peter standing on the day of Pentecost and preaching a message that caused 3,000 people to be saved. And Jesus could have just as easily kicked him to the curb for what he did. Yeah, but it's just easier to write him off. Or another common thing that's heard in churches, I, I knew they wouldn't last. They never really had anything. See, 
See, what Jesus was trying to give us an example of and what we're looking at today that John's talking about is that when there is forgiveness, then there should be restoration. And when there's restoration, it brings about fellowship. But when none of those things happen, then there is no fellowship. And restoration is more than just mending broken hearts. I'm going to say something here and... and Listen closely to, to this. Refusal, refusal of believers to restore a brother is to surrender one of God's forgiven to the work of the devil. When we refuse to restore a brother, then we have just absolutely said, I am willing to turn someone that God has forgiven over to the devil. That's right. Consider restoration like this. Restoration of a brother could be looked at as a redeployment of a soldier. We are helping that brother to get back into constructive service for God. Now, sometimes when a soldier gets hurt and he goes back into active duty... Maybe he's not doing the exact same thing he was doing before he got hurt. But he's back into active duty. And maybe if a brother has done something and has sinned and has asked for forgiveness and we have tried to restore him back to his, his ministry that God has called him to, maybe he can't do the exact same ministry he was doing before, but he can do something. Certainly turning him over to the devil is not an option. It would be kind of like when a soldier gets wounded in battle and the rest of the soldiers just take him and turn him over to the enemy. He's no good anymore, so we're just going to give him to you. And sadly, that's what a lot of churches have done. What needs to happen for restoration to take place? Some churches actually believe that before you can be restored that you have to stand up in church and tell the entire congregation everything you ever did wrong. I don't necessarily believe that. I know of a situation similar to that when this person was a teenager and they've never been back to church since then. That worked well. What I do believe has to happen in order for restoration to take place, are a couple things. It requires honest and straightforward acknowledgement of failure or sin. I believe the person has to acknowledge they've done something. 1 John 1 and 9 verifies that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we will do our part, God has promised He will do His part. This is speaking of confession to God. Not to a guy in a little booth. Or a public confession in Sunday school. You know why? Because those people, the guy in the little booth, or the people in your Sunday school class can't forgive your sin. 
So when we confess it to God and we acknowledge our sin to God, the Bible says that He will forgive us and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, keep in mind, if we have wronged someone or we have wronged a group of people, then I believe part of that process is to go back and make amends with those people or that group of people. But I don't think it requires public humiliation. Exactly right. That I agree. That's that's the best way you can put it. It's just nobody else's business. I agree. I believe that another condition of restoration is it requires true repentance on the person's part. To repent is to change course or to reverse direction. Once confession has been made and forgiveness received, then repentance must be demonstrated. And that means that that person makes a commitment to turn away from that behavior that was offending or sinful and change direction. Proverbs 28 and 13 says that he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So the, the, the writer here was saying, if you confess your sins and you renounce them, which means you say, I'm not doing that anymore, and you change your direction, that you will find mercy from God. John stated in our passage we read today that when we have done our part, that God is faithful and just and He will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And some believers would not want you to think that's how it works. But that is what the Bible says. When we allow God to shine His light on our lives, we will realize that maybe we aren't as perfect as we thought we were. And when we finally realize that, I believe it's then that we truly understand what Paul was referring to in Ephesians 6 and 1 when he said, watch out for yourself because you're capable of the same thing. I'm not talking about gross sin in particular. I'm talking about any kind of sin. And we've established this many times before, that sin is sin. If you cheat on your income taxes, then that's stealing and you sinned. Oh, I thought stealing was when you went into the bank with a gun. That would be considered stealing too. Malachi also says that um, when we don't give what's God's, that we rob God. So... That'd kind of be stealing too. See, I can say that because I work for free. <laughs> Restore your brother in the way that you would want to be restored if it were you. That's what Paul was saying in Ephesians that we're all capable of doing that. Be careful. Watch yourself. And John made it clear in 1 John 2 and 1 that he was writing to the church. He said, I'm writing this so you don't sin. 
Don't mistake what I'm saying as saying, go ahead and sin and do whatever you want because God will forgive you. He's saying, I'm primarily writing to you this message so that you don't sin in the first place. But let me make it clear to you that if you do, here's what you need to do. And as I was studying this lesson, I thought, how many people over the years have been sent away from churches because of a sin in their life with no attempt to restore them in a biblical way? And sadly, some of those sins were actually just someone else's personal convictions and not really a sin. They just did something somebody didn't like. And if the truth be told, the person doing the judging probably had some real sins in their heart. I believe that John was so forceful in his admonition to the church that he said, if you say you've never sinned, then you're a liar. That's pretty strong words. If you say that you've never sinned, you are a liar. That's 1 John 1 and 8 from the David Goldsberry translation. That's what he meant. I believe that another important part of this process is this. If God has forgiven you, then you need to forgive you. You don't go around kicking yourself after God has forgiven you saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. No. If God has forgiven you, it's forgiven. Forgive yourself. In John chapter 8, we see a woman that had been brought to Jesus and accused of adultery. And a group, the group of men that, that brought her to Jesus asked Jesus, should she be stoned? And the Scripture says that Jesus knelt down and he started to write on the ground. And we don't know what he wrote. There's been speculation of different things. It could have been that he was writing down the names of all the men that she had committed adultery with and half of them were standing there. But the Bible says that eventually they all kind of just, oh, okay. And Jesus, but first, Jesus stood up and he said, I'll tell you what, I've been doodling on the ground here and writing down a few things. Um, yeah, go ahead and stone her. But let the one who's never sinned, let him throw the first stone. But yeah, go ahead. And they all turned around and walked off. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, he says to her, I guess you don't have any more accusers. And then he spoke these words, and these are the words that I want to give you today. If you have been forgiven, he said, then neither do I condemn you. And here's the important part. Go and sin no more. I'm not condemning you. Yeah, you've done wrong. Obviously, you've sinned, but now you're forgiven, and I'm not condemning you anymore for that. So now everything's all wiped clean. Go and don't sin anymore. When we have repented and been forgiven, then it is not left for anyone to condemn us anymore. 
if a brother that we go to church with or that we fellowship with has sinned and fallen and God has forgiven them, they've gone through the the different things and been restored, who are we to remember it against them? If Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, and those men eventually came back to her and started condemning her, then they were saying, I've got more say-so than Jesus had. Most importantly, at that point, God no longer condemns us. And it's at this point that we need to follow the words that Jesus told this woman... At that point, we need to accept forgiveness and go and sin no more. If we don't allow the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ to take away our sin, then we are in effect saying that it wasn't enough or that it really just doesn't matter what he did. Once the sins in our life have been forgiven, once they are gone, they are gone. And if we don't allow that to happen, then we don't acknowledge the cleansing power of that blood. Keep in mind that goes for the sins of others. If God has forgiven someone, who are we not to? 1 John 2 and 2 says that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for the entire world. Not just for us, but for the sins of the whole world. And that is meant that everyone that will accept the blood of Jesus Christ as atonement for their sins, they are forgiven. That's what it means. It means that if God has forgiven us or someone else... For us not to accept that is to say, Jesus, you should have done more. What you did wasn't enough. Well, I would never say that. If we don't accept forgiveness on our sins and we don't accept that Christ is, or God has forgiven someone of their sins, then that is in effect what we're saying. John pointed out three marks of a true relationship with God. Number one, righteousness. Literally, that means living right. Pretty simple. If we want to be followers of Christ, then we need to strive to live a lifestyle like His. It means that we are willing to change an action or an attitude that is not in keeping with the example that He set for us. There is nothing that is within us that's righteous. Any righteous that we might, any righteousness that we might see in our life only comes from God. Number two is obedience. Our obedience to God should not come from a legalistic following of rules. Well, I, I give, I go by the rules of my church, so I'm saved. No, you're not. You're a good rule follower. Our obedience to God should not come as a result, result of fear that God is going to destroy us and send us to hell. Our obedience to God must come from a love of Him that is so great that we are willing to examine our lives and say, God, if there's anything in me that's not right, point it out to me and let me get rid of it. 
That's the kind of obedience that God's looking for. The third thing is loving other believers, John 13 and 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. But I love God. Good for you. But by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. But I love God. You have to have love one for another. John was talking in this passage that we're reading today that the whole point of all of these things that he was writing was to restore fellowship between he and the disciples and the believers of that day and between them and God, and that goes for us today. And the theme that John talked about is that once we have acknowledged our sin, once we have confessed our sin, once we have repented, God forgives us, and then we have fellowship with Him and other believers. True fellowship requires love. If there's no love in the gathering, then it's been reduced to a social organization. The Elks Club. It's a social group. They don't have to love each other. They're all members of the club. And that's what they have in common is that they're all members of the club. Well, Christianity is not a club. We call each other brother and sister because we love one another and we're part of the same family. And that's why it's important to have that fellowship. We realize that none of us are worthy on our own. We realize that, as the Bible says, that our righteousness is as of filthy rags. We realize that all of us are sinners that have been forgiven by the same blood of Jesus Christ. We have something in common. When we do these things, we won't look down on other people and we won't try to lift ourselves up as being holier than the person in the pew next to us because we realize we all came from the same place. Paul said that salvation is by faith so that no one could boast about they did it on their own. And when we truly realize all of these things, it's then and only then that we can have true fellowship with our God as well as with our brothers and sisters. God bless you.